Happy Independence Day on this Independence Day. By the way, that Joe Biden has so generously given us permission to celebrate if we're vaxxed, as if. I examine the questions, was America conceived in racism? Is the Constitution a fundamentally pro-slavery document? And were the founding fathers racist? If we don't know the answers to these questions, then how can we fight back against the radical leftist attempt to delegitimize our entire nation? Plus, the five stories the mainstream media refused to report to you this week. I'm Liz Wheeler. Welcome to The Liz Wheeler Show. Everybody who knows me knows that Independence Day is my all-time favorite holiday all year round, and I will tell you why in just a second. But first... Let me talk to you about ExpressVPN. There are a lot of things we both search for online that aren't anybody's business, and perhaps uh, it's even more evident that we like our freedom, we like our liberty during the Independence Day season. But whatever you search for, whether it's a security system for your house, guns that you want to purchase, personal things that you want to buy, you don't want other people to know what you search for. That's your personal business. And honestly, I just learned this very recently. It doesn't matter if you use incognito mode or private mode. That's not good enough. It doesn't even matter if you clear your browsing history. Your internet service provider can not only see what you've searched for, and what websites you visited, they can sell it to ad companies. That's why even when I'm at home, I never go online without using ExpressVPN because internet service providers are creeps. They sell your information and nobody wants that. Well, ExpressVPN is an app that reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so that your internet service provider cannot see the sites you visit. That's more like it. ExpressVPN also keeps all your info secure by encrypting 100% of your data with the most powerful encryption available. All you have to do is tap one button and you are protected. So protect your online activity today. Visit my exclusive link, expressvpn.com slash Liz, and you can get an extra three months free on a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash Liz, expressvpn.com slash Liz to learn more, protect yourself, just like I do with ExpressVPN. Did you guys ever see the movie or the musical, I should say, 1776? It has uh, that guy, I forget the actor's name, but he played Mr. Feeney in Boy Meets World. He played John Adams in the 1776 musical. This John Adams, this character in the movie is what I like to think of as my spirit animal. In fact, my family, we watch this every year on the 4th of July on a loop. It plays all day at our, at our barbecue and our bonfire. And my family sometimes breaks into the song, Sit Down, John, when I rant. So I like to think of John Adams in this movie as my spirit animal. It's also, of course, a brilliant commentary on Congress. When they're debating independence in this movie, uh, they're obviously debating liberty, should they declare independence, but they also, the sub-debate happening underneath the primary debate, this is happening simultaneously, is whether to open a window. If that is not the most brilliant commentary on our Congress right now, I don't know what is, um, they also have one of the funniest lines of the, mu- of the movie when John Adams said, one useless man is a waste, two are a law firm, and three are a Congress. Absolute funniest thing that I've ever seen. So if you haven't watched it, that's what I'm going to be doing uh, this 4th of July. I highly recommend that you watch it too. Today I do want to talk about a question that's a little bit more serious than just enjoying a musical. I want to dive into the question, were America's founders racist? And this is kind of the great contradiction of mankind, right? Do our good deeds lose merit due to our fallen nature? Because all men are sinners. So if we sin in a particularly large way, does that erase the good deeds that we have done? It's a pretty heavy question, right? 
So we're going to combine that question with, was the Constitution or is the Constitution racist? Was it a pro-slavery document as written? Because the big question that we want to identify today, or we want to examine today, is was America conceived in racism? And it's actually two different questions. Were the Founding Fathers racist or was America conceived in racism? But the other side of the political aisle, the left, wants to tell us that it's one and the same. So this is the argument essentially is, is America good, fundamentally good, but with flaws? Or is America fundamentally evil and therefore illegitimate? So we know what the other side says to this argument. I want to talk first about their arguments. The 1619 Project is a perfect example of what the radical left believes about the founding of our country. And not just the founding, but how the founding impacts what our nation is today. The 1619 Project claims, quote, anti-black racism runs in the very DNA of this country. So it, quote, aims to reframe the country's history, obviously by making 1619, the first year that slavery was introduced by the British, by the way, to Virginia. They want to make that the true founding. The 1619 Project wants to delegitimize our country by making our founding documents from the Constitution to the uh, Declaration of Independence immoral, tainted by slavery and racism, and therefore illegitimate. If the Declaration and Constitution are illegitimate, thus so is the entire country, even up to present day. This is the 1619 Project. They also claim, the 1619 Project claims, and this is ahistorical, historians from both sides of the aisle whose specialty is history, that's why they're historians, has said that this following claim from the 1619 Project is untrue. They claim, the 1619 Project says that, quote, one of the primary reasons the colonists decided to declare their independence from Britain was because they wanted to protect the institution of slavery. That is categorically false. It was the British governors in some of the states that wouldn't even allow the states to abolish slavery. That's a conversation. All of the fallacies and the falsehoods in the 1619 Project are perhaps a conversation for a different day. But the, the point right now is that the 1619 Project, critical race theory, the effort to remove statues and names of founding fathers and other historical figures from our country, these radical leftists want to abolish everything about our nation, including our institutions, because they claim that our nation is systemically racist today because it was conceived in racism. So let's examine this objectively today. Our nation, first of all, has committed egregious human rights abuses against black Americans in our history. We had racist laws targeting black people because of the color of their skin. There's no excuse for that. No one denies that either, nor should they. We must teach the evil of first slavery and then racism that occurred in our history so that we don't repeat anything of the kind. In fact, another interesting conversation, we're at risk of repeating that same racialism with critical race theory. But again, perhaps a conversation for a different day. But back to the original question, is the United States fundamentally racist? Are we systemically racist? Has the U.S. been systemically racist from the time of her founding due to her founding? So to examine this, we have to divide this into three parts. The founders themselves, the documents, and then the system of government that they created. So before we get to that, I want to talk quickly about neutrophil. It's important to take care of your mind. It's also important to take care of your body. 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. If you are among them, know that you are not alone. There's a solution you can trust to deliver results. Neutrophil offers two targeted formulas for women that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness with less shedding through all stages of life. 
Nutrafol is 100% drug-free. They use medical-grade botanicals in consistently effective dosages so that you get the most reliable results. You can visit Nutrafol.com and take their hair wellness quiz for personalized product recommendations that are unique to your hair's needs. No matter your stage of life, Nutrafol has a solution whether you're experiencing hair loss due to stress, diet, overstyling, or environmental toxins. And 86% of women in a clinical study reported improvement in these areas. That's why so many doctors recommend Nutrafol. You can grow thicker, healthier hair, and you can support our show at the same time by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code Liz to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time, plus free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code Liz, when you subscribe, you will receive automatic monthly deliveries so that you never miss a dose. So first, in our question, in our pursuit of the history, the truth of, was America conceived in racism? We're going to look at what the founders' words, right? We're going to look at the founders' words, we're going to look at the documents, and we're going to look at the governmental system. So the founders' words in writing, first of all, not a single major founding father, founder, endorsed slavery. And I understand that this was a contradiction because in words, they didn't endorse slavery. They even condemned it, though many founding fathers themselves owned slaves. That is a fundamental contradiction. One, by the way, that many of the founding fathers recognized. Now, my commentary here is their actions, the actions of the founding fathers owning slaves, inexcusable. They're jeopardizing their own souls by doing so, contradicted by the fact that their work, forming a government, laid the groundwork for the freedom of enslaved souls in our nation. When you juxtapose that, it is quite, quite, not just a contradiction, but it's quite a head-scratching concept to think about. So here are the words from the Founding Fathers. In the words of George Washington, quote, there's not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of slavery. John Adams held the practice of slavery in abhorrence. He wanted all the Founding Fathers to work as hard as possible, quote, for the eventual total extirpation of slavery from the United States. Ben Franklin said slavery was an atrocious debasement of human nature. Alexander Hamilton wrote that because slaves were obviously men, quote, by the laws of God and nature, they were capable of acquiring liberty. James Madison specifically recognized the contradiction between owning slaves and fighting for liberty in the new United States of America. He called it irony. He said, we have seen the mere distinction of color made in the most enlightened period of time, a ground of the most oppressive dominion ever exercised by man over man. Now, something interesting that public schools don't often teach is Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration of Independence calls the slave trade an affront, quote, against human nature itself. And we're going to talk about that more in just a minute. But another major founding father, Governor Morris, called slavery a nefarious institution. He called it the curse of heaven. John Jay said, quote, it is much to be wished that slavery may be abolished. To contend for our own liberty, he said, and to deny that blessing to others involves an inconsistency not to be excused. That one may be my favorite. Now, Madison, obviously the one who drafted the Constitution, he did not use the word slave, he did not use any racial classification at all in the Constitution, and he said he did this intentionally because slaves are persons, not property. This is his quote. It is wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. Instead, 
Madison said he wanted slaves to be thought of, quote, as a moral person, not as a mere article or property. So not a major founding father endorsed slavery in their writings or in their work. They were contradicted, many of them, in their actions, nor do any statements exist from any of the founders in their prolific speeches, publications, letters, elaborating any kind of argument defending the inequality or human rights abuse that the slaves were subject to based on race. In fact, slavery predated the founding fathers and what they were doing. It was pre-revolutionary. It was something that was handed down to the era the founding fathers lived in. It was not something the founding fathers brought to the table. And that's, I think, while studying this, that's where I thought this contradiction came into play. Because something that is culturally handed down to you contradicts the work that you are doing. And that's what happened to the founders here. This was something that they inherited prior to the Revolutionary War. And the American Revolution itself, the principles of the Revolution, wholly condemned this practice. In fact, the founders intentionally created this nation based on the idea that all men were created equal with no caveats for skin color. All men were created equal. So those are the words of the founders themselves, and that is important to take into account. So then we move to the documents, the founding documents. So Declaration of Independence comes first, of course. The Declaration of Independence also did not endorse slavery. Going back to what I said before, Thomas Jefferson's original draft of the Declaration actually contained a section. It was a whole paragraph that condemned slavery as immoral. By enabling the slave trade in the colony, this is Jefferson, what Jefferson wrote, the British monarch had, quote, waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither, end quote. Can you imagine the difference in the history of our nation if that paragraph had been included in the Declaration? I mean, our history would have been wildly different. Unfortunately, obviously, this anti-slavery paragraph was cut from the final draft of the Declaration because South Carolina and Georgia would not vote for liberty if there was an anti-slavery line in the Declaration of Independence. But the Declaration obviously still laid out principles that were blatantly contradictory of slavery. All men are created equal. And the founders knew this. This was intentional on the part of the founders. They knew that this phrase, all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, among these being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, of course included black people in our country. They knew this. Even the slave states of Georgia and South Carolina knew this. So that's the declaration. Then we move to the Constitution, our other founding document. Again, the words slave and slavery, as I mentioned before, never appeared in the original constitutional text. As Madison said, this was done on purpose. However, the argument from the other side, and this argument is not just a modern-day argument. This is something that goes back to when the Constitution was being debated itself. Was this a pro-slavery document or an anti-slavery document? The arguments coming from those who argued that it was a pro-slavery document focused on three parts. The three-fifths clause, these are, are, by the way, called the compromises to proponents of slavery. The three-fifths clause is the first thing. It essentially said that uh, for the purposes of taxation and congressional representation, slaves would be counted not as a whole person 
and not as zero persons, but as three-fifths of a free person. Now, this is obviously an affront on humanity. I don't think that anybody denies that. However, if you look at the history of this, this clause actually has nothing to do with defining the humanity of slaves. Even though that's what it does, that wasn't the intention of it. It was, however, about political power. What do I mean by that? If slaves in the Constitution had counted as whole persons for the purpose of taxation and representation, the South would have had a lot more representation in the House of Representatives. Without it, the slave states had a reduced power in Congress. That was the argument of that compromise. Now, was that compromise right? Probably not. Is it an affront to humanity? Probably. But that's the argument behind it. And what what we see oftentimes during these debates on the compromises or was the Constitution a pro-slavery document or anti-slavery document, as we see people ignoring the nuance, ignoring context, ignoring the actual arguments, and looking at it just from how they would interpret it in this day and age. So again, was the compromise right? No. But was the purpose of it to make it a pro-slavery document? No, the purpose of it was to reduce the power of pro-slavery Southerners in the United States Congress. It's a terrible choice. So then we have the second compromise. The second compromise in the Constitution is a prohibition on the abolition of the slave trade, but the prohibition was not allowed until the year 1808. So the prohibition did not go into effect immediately. How could you argue that this is an anti-slavery document if this abolition of the slave trade was not allowed, was pushed back, kicked, the can was kicked down the road until 1808? Well, we're going to get to that in a second. The third compromise is the Fugitive Slave Clause, which states that anyone held to the service or labor in one state under the laws thereof couldn't be freed by another state. In fact, that state, even if it was a free state, was required to return that person when a claim of property was made. So, by the way, the Constitution, the the drafters, the founders, the framers of the Constitution actually edited the verbiage in the final version of the Fugitive Slave Clause so that it did not imply that slavery was in any way legal or good. So the original draft of this part actually read, quote, no person legally held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof but the word legally was struck out of the text. James Madison said the purpose of this was because the founders did not want to endorse, quote, the idea that slavery was legal in a moral view. So those are the three compromises that exist in the Constitution that causes this debate over whether the Constitution was pro-slavery or anti-slavery. Now, speaking of fighting for freedom and liberty and justice, let's talk for a second about the long game. We talk about the culture wars all the time on this show. We've known for a long time that America's under siege. We're in a war for the soul of our nation. We always are, every generation. Well, the new president of the Young America's Foundation, Governor Scott Walker, is launching the long game, which is a plan to save America as we know it, as we love her. The long game, spearheaded by Governor Scott Walker and my friends over at YAF, is a plan to halt the left's attack on America and reinstill the values of freedom and American greatness in our nation's youth. This will invest in young people, invest in our culture, invest in academia, and hold tyrannical leftists accountable for their actions to join this important fight to save America and get your free copy of The Long Game. You can go to yaf.org longgame So an interesting part to note 
when before before we get to the governmental system that was created as a result of the Constitution. So we've talked about the founders' words. We've talked about the documents briefly, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution itself. Before we get to the effect that the Declaration and Constitution had on our governmental system, it's it's interesting to note what Frederick Douglass thought about these documents, the Constitution of the United States. So Fred, Frederick Douglass was born into slavery. By the way, if you have not read the biography of Frederick Douglass, you, you must, you must, as soon as you're done listening to this episode, you must read the biography of Frederick Douglass. I, it's inexplicable how good this book is. Frederick Douglass was born into slavery. He suffered mightily while enslaved, obviously. He then pursued freedom, obtained freedom, became a leading abolitionist, and then documented everything that he did and said and saw and experienced. And it's phenomenal to read how this man triumphed over some of the most gross oppression and abuse fathomable to mankind. Frederick Douglass, what did he think of the Constitution then? Having been a slave himself, did he consider the Constitution to be pro-slavery or anti-slavery? Well, this is very, very interesting. So before the 13th Amendment was added to the Constitution, and that did not happen until 1865, that formally ended slavery in the United States, um, many people who were anti-slave, meaning the abolitionists, argued that slavery was already unconstitutional. That would certainly be my point of view. It is also the view shared by Frederick Douglass. So we need to back up just for a second here. There was an abolitionist at the time, this was in about 1845, named Lysander Spooner. And he was the one who published a book that became very popular called The Unconstitutionality of Slavery. He said the Constitution's words themselves supported liberty for all of the slaves. He, he also argued that the absence of the word slave or slavery in the Constitution was additional evidence that the document's intent was anti-slavery or abolition or freedom for the enslaved. Spooner argued that the preamble, quote, does not declare that we the white people or we the free people or we a part of the people, but that we the people, that is, we the whole people of the United States, do ordain and establish this Constitution. So his argument was that black slaves should be as free as white women and children at the time, quote, because the whole people of the country were not allowed to vote on the ratification of the Constitution, it does not follow that they were not made citizens under it. For women and children did not vote on its adoption, he said, yet they were made citizens by it, and the state governments cannot enslave them. So Frederick Douglass built on the abolition work of Lysander Spooner. So then we have, of course, the Supreme Court ruling in Dred Scott uh, v. Sanford. That was in 1857 that said that black people, black slaves, were not citizens of the United States and could not sue for their freedom under the Constitution. Now, is this proof that the Constitution is pro-slavery? Frederick Douglass says no. Frederick Douglass said that that decision was wrong, that it misinterpreted the Constitution. And Frederick Douglass said, despite that Supreme Court ruling, he considered the Constitution to be an anti-slavery document, and he still supported it. He outlined why, in a very famous speech that he gave, which, again, highly encourage everybody to read. The speech itself is called, The Constitution, Is It Pro-Slavery or Anti-Slavery? Back when headlines actually matched the content that you were getting. Douglas Frederick Douglass argued that the Constitution was anti-slavery um, because he said, He's like, I, on the other hand, compared to abolitionists who were anti-Constitution, 
I, on the other hand, deny that the Constitution guarantees the right to hold property in man and believe that the way to abolish slavery in America is to vote such men into power as will use their powers for the abolition of slavery. And he went through the compromises that I mentioned before, um, debunking, in a sense, or making an argument they were not even pro-slavery compromises. These are his arguments. Frederick Douglass argued that the, quote, other persons in the three-fifths clause wasn't solely applicable to slaves, but could also apply to any non-citizen aliens or immigrants. In fact, he was the one who first, or who in a large way made popular the argument that the three-fifths compromise was more about political power and less about humanity. Again, I would still say no excuse for that, but Frederick Douglass said it decreased, it diminished the power of the slave states in the United States Congress, which helped lead eventually to the abolition of black people in the United States. The slave trade prohibition clause in Article I of the Constitution, um, many of those who argue that the Constitution is pro-slavery say, well, it showed that the, the framers were just kicking the can down the road, that they wanted to allow the slave trade. Douglas said the opposite. He said that ending the slave trade in 1808, quote, showed that the intentions of the framers of the Constitution were good, not bad. The clause looked, quote, to the abolition of slavery rather than to its perpetuity. Interesting. A former slave who had been abused, enslaved, regained, reclaimed his freedom, argued that the Constitution itself was anti-slavery. He supported the Constitution. He, he gave other arguments too. He said, for example, that the Constitution prohibits bills of attainder, which are laws that declare some group of people or a particular person guilty of a crime, but without any trial. So he said, quote, a slave is made a slave because his mother is a slave. And therefore he said, under the Constitution, which prohibits bills of attainder, then that should have ended slavery basically immediately. So, like I said, a, a, a tiny bit tangential to talk about what Frederick Douglass thought, but he was there at the time. He was there at the time, and he believed the Constitution to be a fundamentally anti-slavery document. So first we had the founders in their own words, with their contradiction of their actions, sure, founders in their own words. Then we had the documents themselves, the founding documents, the Declaration and the, and the Constitution. We added in Frederick Douglass and his analysis of the Constitution more or less at the time. And now let's talk about the governmental systems of the United States or, or what the founding of the country led to. Again, there's no doubt that the United States grossly mistreated black people in our history, but the racism that became pervasive in our country became pervasive as an ideology versus just an inherited practice of slavery after the founding of our country, especially in the South. And in, that in and of itself is a much overlooked part of history, how ideology changed between the founding and between when slavery was at its height in the South. Before that kind of anti-Black ideology took hold of the South to the extent that it did, Congress abolished the slave trade. In fact, the day, the first day that Congress was allowed, the very first day that they could prohibit the importation of slaves they did so. Congress passed and President Thomas Jefferson signed that prohibition into law. Congress then restricted slavery even further. They passed the Northwest Ordinance in 1787 
that outlawed slavery in the Northwest Territories. Seven years after that, Congress prohibited the building of ships for the purpose, the explicit purpose of the slave trade. In addition, individual states, and this builds on what I said before, that the, that the revolution's founding principles were inherently, fundamentally anti-slavery. So building on this, uh, this idea that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, eight individual states after the revolution, this, they did this through either legislature or through courts, began to abolish slavery. Vermont, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, New York, New Jersey. Even in Virginia, Thomas Jefferson himself introduced a bill in the legislature in 1778 that banned the importation of slavery. He said that he hoped that this would lead to the institution's, quote, final eradication. Now, eventually, thanks to the principles in the Constitution and in the Declaration, less than 100 years after the United States declared independence from Britain, slavery was abolished completely. So, so what, what does this tell us? If we summarize this, this is what we find. America's founding fathers thought that slavery was abhorrent and it should be abolished. They contradicted this with their own behavior, yet they set up a government that they purposely, intentionally knew would lead to the abolition of slavery. They, in fact, thought the Constitution would end slavery quicker than it did. So this was the question they grappled with. Should they create a system of government that continued to tolerate slavery temporarily, but would eventually lead to the abolition of slavery? Or should they refuse to create a system of government that allowed slavery even temporarily because it was so abhorrent and not create the union at all? That's a very heavy question. To me, it's somewhat the equivalent of banning late-term abortion. Do we ban late-term abortions while implicitly then allowing first and second trimester abortion to continue, even though it's all a grave moral evil? Or do we ban what we can while laying the framework and the groundwork to work towards banning it all? History is very, very important in determining, in answering the questions posed by the left encountering their radical leftist ideology. Was the United States conceived in racism? No, it was not. Was racism and slavery antithetical to the founding principles? Yes, inarguably. Did sinful men misapply those founding principles to justify racism and slavery and discrimination against black people in our country? Yes. But did America course correct due to the anti-slavery nature of those founding principles? Yes. Are we the most free and equal and just nation in world history thanks to the system of government founded by those flawed and sometimes racist men? Yes, we are. So is America systemically racist? No, we are quite the opposite. And now we will get to the stories that the mainstream media refused to report to you this week. This one is a crazy story to start with. Why is the state of Indiana, controlled by Republicans, funding critical race theory in schools? Big kudos to Gabe Kaminsky at The Federalist for reporting on this. This is his report, and I will read it to you. Quote, multiple Indiana government agencies are involved in the conference pushing critical race theory, including state-funded universities. Nearly all Republican leaders refused to comment when asked about it. 
Oh, you gotta love those brave, brave Republican leaders. Kaminsky reports, state agencies in Republican-controlled Indiana are providing taxpayer dollars and marketing assistance to a far-left organization that is bringing two prominent critical race theory activists to a statewide teachers' conference this summer. Indiana Black Expo, and that's the name of the conference, will host its annual education conference from July 13th to 15th. Dina Simmons and Dr. Bettina Love, two activists who frequently rake in thousands from taxpayers to lecture on systemic racism, will deliver keynote speeches. Simmons says, this is all Kaminsky's report, Simmons says those who do not support anti-racism in education, an ideology that charges the United States with systemic racism, and accuse people of evil based on their inborn skin color are white supremacists. Multiple state government entities are involved in the conference, including state-funded universities. The Indiana Department of Child Services, Department of Education, and Commission for Higher Education are listed as conference partners on the Blacks Expo's organization's website. Now, Child Services told the Federalists the state agency paid Black Expo $20,000 this year. Secretary of Education Katie Jenner, appointed by Republican Governor Eric Holcomb and making a taxpayer-provided annual salary of $175,000, will speak at the conference on the third day. Two taxpayer-funded institutions, Indiana University and Indiana State University, are also listed as sponsors of the event. That's quite something, isn't it? Critical race theory being promoted using taxpayer money in a state like Indiana that is controlled by Republicans, did the mainstream media report this? They did not. But kudos to Gabe Kaminsky at The Federalist for doing his due diligence. Amazing story. Great scoop. Oh, this is a good story. Story number two. A new study finds the lockdown orders, the stay-at-home orders, were deadly. Not only were they deadly, they were ineffective. In a new paper, economists from the University of Southern California and the RAND Corporation uh, examined this. They used data from 43 countries and all 50 U.S. states, and they analyzed not just the deaths from COVID-19, but excess deaths. This is, of course, how many more deaths there were compared to a year's typical amount of deaths, basically a historical baseline. The authors found that stay-at-home orders have had lethal unintended consequences. This is obvious, right? We know there's increases in suicide, in mental health, drug overdose, child abuse, uh, medical care that's delayed and canceled, leading to death, et cetera, et cetera. So when these authors of the study examined excess deaths, this is what they found. Quote, we failed to find that shelter-in-place policies saved lives. Instead, they concluded that the implementation of these policies increased excess mortality to a great extent. They found that a one-week increase in the length of stay-at-home policies corresponds with 2.7 more excess deaths per 100,000 people. Quote, we failed to find that countries or U.S. states that implemented shelter-in-place policies earlier and which shelter-in-place policies had longer to operate had lower excess deaths than countries or U.S. states that were slower to implement those shelter-in-place policies. Well, this seems like a hugely important story, right? This is, this is the most disruptive public policy that arguably has ever impacted us in modern times. Our businesses were disrupted. Our individual liberties were corrupted. Our economy has been deeply damaged. Our national security is at risk. And for what? According to the study, for nothing. More people died because of these orders than were saved by them. But did the mainstream media report on the science, even though they claim to be all about the science? No, no, the mainstream media did not. This next story is 
probably horrifying to everyone who hears it, a Boston hospital is set to offer medical care, preferential medical care, based on the skin color of the individual they're treating, based on race. Why? Because they're trying to be anti-racist. They have an anti-racist agenda for medicine. And it's based, yep, you guessed it, on critical race theory. There was an article in the Boston Review uh, titled An Anti-Racist Agenda for Medicine, obviously self-explanatory. And it talks about this plan from Brigham and Women's Hospital that will implement what they're calling a reparations framework. So what does that mean? There are two doctors, Dr. Brom Wispelswi and Dr. Michelle Morse. They both teach at Harvard Medical School, by the way. So this is not just a hospital. This is Harvard Medical School. They want medical resources to be doled out to people based on the color of a person's skin, not based on their medical need. And this is what they say when, when people think, obviously, well, that's discriminatory and probably illegal under both the Civil Rights Act and the 14th Amendment. This is what they say, quote, offering preferential care based on race or ethnicity may elicit legal challenges from our system of colorblind law. We encourage other institutions to proceed confidently on behalf of equity and racial justice with backing provided by recent White House executive orders. So they know that providing medical care based solely on the color of people's skins will lead to discrimination, equity, does not mean equal opportunity. It means equal outcome, which requires people to be discriminated against based on their skin color. They know this is a violation of the law, the 14th Amendment and the Civil Rights Act, and they don't care. But did the mainstream media report on this? They barely touched it. This is a story big tech will probably censor but they shouldn't, and I will tell you why. The CDC just published new data about the risk of myocarditis. That's the heart inflammation issue that many young people have been experiencing after receiving the second dose of the COVID-19 vax, the mRNA vax. So the CDC just posted uh, new data on how many people, how many young people are experiencing myocarditis after the vax, and what they found in this data, of course, they don't address this conclusion in the way that I'm going to address it, but the data draws this conclusion that the risk for people under the age of 25 of contracting myocarditis or pericarditis after the COVID vax could be over 200 times higher than the background rate, meaning the expected rate in the population of that, of that people, of that age of people. 200 times higher. And what's worse is the data shows that the risk of this happening, the risk of this heart inflammation gets worse the younger you are. If you're 21, it's worse than if you're 25. If you're 16, it's worse than if you're 21. The data itself from the CDC shows this. But did the mainstream media report on this? Not much, they did not. And we'll see if YouTube censors this because it came directly from the CDC website. That's why we showed the photograph on the screen. Since the mainstream media won't report the truth to you, I will. The great and powerful Jay Hay, as much as he loves the sound of my voice all the time, is telling me that we are out of time for today. Thank you so much for joining us. Please subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Hit that subscribe button. Download the episodes. Obviously, listen to them. Give us a five-star rating and a glowing review. I appreciate every single one, and I do read them all, by the way. Until next time, think for yourself. Use critical thought, reject critical theory, question authority, follow the facts, and do not let government 
or corporate wokeism or cultural Marxism or anybody bully you into being a sheep. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show. The Liz Wheeler Show is produced by Jonathan Hay. Executive producer, Chad Abbott. Director of photography, Kevin McRoberts. Editor, Stephen Reyes. Assistant editor, Michael Wall. Assistant editor, Tommy Weber. Sound mixer, Robin Fenderson. Post-production manager, Victoria Metzl. Director of marketing, Emily Washler. Senior publicist, Patricia Jackson. And production assistant, Mickey Pisani. This has been a Soundfront production.